Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Our quarterly Return to Roots DOJ report card episode with familiar friends arrives during a banner week for DOJ watchers. It's a week that began with the receipt of a second target letter from DOJ to Donald Trump portending imminent charges under three federal statutes. The precise timing and content of the charges, including the identities of possible co-conspirators, remain murky, though subject to educated guesses by DOJ veterans. Meanwhile, in the department's already indicted case, Judge Eileen Cannon, Trump's erstwhile patron, played it roughly down the middle in a hearing and subsequent order setting trial for April 20th, 2024, a date that everyone knows that Trump will try to push back with any rational and irrational argument he can muster. The arrival of a new indictment anchored in the post-election events coincides with somewhat overlapping charges from various states including Michigan, whose attorney general this week charged 16 citizens with various state crimes arising out of their brazen lies about being the state's chosen electors supporting Trump. The proliferation of state and federal charges likely will push special counsel Jack Smith towards some measure of cooperation and information sharing. So on a week with DOJ news breaking daily and in all directions, like so many bombs bursting in air over Fort McHenry, our happy band reconvenes. And they need no introduction, but just to remind ourselves, we welcome first Katie Benner. Katie covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, she worked at the Times San Francisco Bureau, before that Bloomberg and Fortune magazine. Hello, Katie Benner. Thanks, as always, for joining our quarterly episode. Do I dare to ask you how the book writing is going? The book writing is going about as well as book writing goes, so I think it's okay. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right. I know I know it gives you more flexible time. Paul Fishman. Paul heads Arnold and Porter's crisis management and strategic response team and is a member of the firm's white-collar defense, commercial litigation, securities enforcement, and appellate practices. Although he is recognized as one of the best DOJ analysts out there, his hourly rate makes it prohibitive to do much commentary with the rest of us. So we're always lucky to have him because he's done it all at the DOJ, line prosecutor, first assistant U.S. attorney, and a very senior official at Maine Justice, and the U.S. attorney for the District of New Jersey from 2009 to 2017. Welcome back to our quarterly DOJ episode, Paul Fishman. Thank you, Harry. It is always a pleasure to be here, especially with Katie and with Andrew. <laughs> so, so, Harry, what I'm hearing is Paul was the poobah at DOJ, and now he's the poobah at Arnold and Porter. Honest to God, Paul would walk down the hall and you would think like, oh shit, did he see me? Because do I, do I have time to pretend I'm going to the bathroom or do, am I just stuck and I just have to oh, walk tall? And TMI. <laughs> TMI. TMI, TMI. He was, he was, as everyone knows, the Podag. Okay. Andrew Weissman, hey, the pay surprise. Paydag. It's Paydag, which is right next to Poobah in the urban dictionary. <laughs> in exactly. the dictionary, right. Here's the Poobah pay tag. <laughs> and now the big surprise is spoiled because everyone now knows our third guest, Andrew Weissman, a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School. Like Paul, he's done it all. He was a line prosecutor, supervisor, senior official, and served as lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office as well as being the chief of the criminal fraud section. He also co-hosts with Mary McCord, the not-too-shabby and moderately popular (laughs) podcast, Prosecuting Trump. Welcome, as always, Andrew. So great to be here. (laughs) It was one of those weeks, only a few days ago, seems longer, that we learned that Trump has received 
another target letter from Jack Smith prefiguring charges for the post-election activity. And once again, the national landscape is upended and we're asked continually when and how and what's it going to be. This crowd's too sophisticated to discuss whether the letter means federal charges are coming. They are coming. So let's move on to more nuanced matters. The target letter listed three charges, two of which, obstruction and conspiracy to defraud, were widely expected. But the third, 18 U.S.C. 241, well, I was going to say took most by surprise, but there were a few commentators out there who had somehow telepathically thought about this years before. One of them is with us. What were you thinking, Andrew Weissman, that made you channel Jack Smith before he even existed back in, what was it, 2021? It was in 2020. It was December of 2020. I was on with Rachel Maddow. Uh, So remember, this is during that interregnum where you have, you know, Trump having lost the election. You could call that reign of terror, I think might be better, but go ahead. I think I had looked at the justice manual, what, since we're all old enough on this, uh, it's former DOJ people, what used to be called- Katie's not that old, come on. Wait, I caveated that- DOJ people, he was careful. Exactly, because one of us is is actually youthful (laughs) Three of us are not. Anyway, what used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual, which is now called the Justice Manual. And I looked at uh, the public integrity section components and was looking at how they thought about these kinds of charges. You say these kind, you mean election interference, basically, yeah? Yeah, what what we were already seeing Donald Trump do, and I sort of broke it out into two buckets. One was general types of crimes that would encompass this. So obstruction, 371, 1001, sort of that could encompass a huge variety of things, but could include this kind of election interference, election fraud. And the other was specific, which is 241 and 242. I thought of 241 as what it was created for, which Mm -hmm. was the disenfranchisement prosecuting and deterring disenfranchisement of recently freed slaves post-Civil War. And to me, that fits so well, including the racial component in this. And I just thought, okay, that's what he's doing. The whole goal of this is to disenfranchise 80 million people. All right. And to be fair, we then moved on to other focuses. I want to return in a moment to how good a fit it is. But the main thing that made this a surprise, I think, is that it stood there as charge number three and DOJ or Smith opted, it appears, not to include a more straightforward charge of what it also looked like, namely insurrection. And people were looking at that. Why, you know, Paul or Katie, do you think that it appears that Jack Smith shied away from a 2383 or just the kind of charge that they haven't shied away from making in the cases of the leaders on the ground like Stuart Rhodes? I just, I think there were some First Amendment issues that would come about since with Stuart Rhodes and with other members of his organization, the Oath Keepers and with the Proud Boys, they had all these text messages and signal messages basically planning to do something violent against Congress that day, including discussion of whether I can bring weapons into the into the Capitol, whereas they don't have that with Trump, but they have these public statements saying, you guys should be coming down here to defend me. But because they didn't have that kind of granular planning, I just felt like they were going to run into some speech issues there that would have made it harder than what they had with... I mean, I think originally thought, people thought that that was going to be a problem with the leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers too, except they had all those messages. And I don't know that they would have those messages with Trump. And it was contrived, but he had slipped in peacefully in the ellipse. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Enough for a defense lawyer to be like, but then what about all the yeah. messages he says? Make sure you don't hurt anyone. Right. And I also think, aside from the First Amendment issues that might attend everybody else, at the time, he was still the president of the United States. And I think the idea that he's speaking about things... I'm, look, we, I think everybody on this podcast has of the same view about what he actually hoped would happen and, or, and was excited about happening on that particular day. But proving that he caused it 
in some sense, or that he actively participated, is just trickier. And it's a much cleaner case. I mean, we can, we'll talk a little bit about 241. I guess we'll come back to that in a minute. But, you know, the, the fact that suppressing votes with fraud is a federal crime, it's 100 years old, right? The statute itself is older than that. But Andrew's right. The, the application of that statute to this kind of conduct is more than a century old. Harry, can I just raise an issue about an insurrection charge? The way I always look at this is I sort of think about what I would do, like if I were in that position, I wouldn't bring an insurrection charge for two reasons that have to do with sort of how it's going to, at the very least, how it's going to be perceived, because this charge has not been used since shortly after the Civil War. And the idea that you're going to reach back to that kind of charge in this case, when you have so many charges that have been recently prosecuted for similar conduct, and you have charges with respect to the actual foot soldiers that you can use, seems like a really good way to deal with treating likes alike and not being accused of, it's not legal selective prosecution, but the sort of the appearance of it by reaching back to a case, it's like saying you're going to charge the Logan Act, where <laughs> yeah. you know, which is which no one has been charged with. And then the second is the insurrection charge has a provision about the fact that upon conviction, the person cannot run for office. And you are going to run straight into the fact that this is a political case. And, and it's not a political case. It's holding someone to account for criminal conduct when they are more responsible than hundreds of people have already been charged, in my view. So I just think for both of those reasons, I think insurrection is a really bad fit when there are better statutes that reflect what happened here. And relatedly, I mean, I think this is implicit in what we're both saying. You know, Smith, under the regulations, is in the position of a U.S. attorney, which Paul has been and I've been. And I think, Andrew, you know a lot of U.S. attorneys. I know you too. <laughs> and implicit here is overweening everything. Don't shoot at the king unless you can kill. I mean, not simply a hung jury, but a Supreme Court. Think about 2383, even the provision you just said. And what if the Supreme Court three years from now throws it out? Holy crap. So let's move now to the exact form and theory. You say, Andrew, well, everyone, oh, it fits the, the conduct so well. How exactly, you know, 241 requires the deprivation, doesn't have to be a color of law, but some deprivation of a right secured by the Constitution or the laws of the United States. Who's right? How abridged? You know, what's your sense? As I say, right now we're sort of spitballing and Jack Smith will tell us in very good time, but it, it's worth, I think, thinking about just what the theory of 241, the indictment will provide. Any Anyone thought? Sure, I'm happy to do it because I've, I've actually charged the 241 case back in the day when I was a younger man. Andrew's right. The statute was passed in 1870, and it was basically designed to stop the Klan from beating the crap out of people on who, who, who were black in, in that period so that they could enjoy the rights to which they were entitled as newly freed citizens of the United States. And and so this, the words of the statute are a conspiracy to injure oppress, threaten, or intimidate. So on its face, it doesn't seem to cover conduct that basically involves not counting votes or counting votes that didn't exist or that sort of thing. But back in 1915, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote an opinion about voter suppression and basically said, if you intentionally and fraudulently count or don't count votes, that matters under this particular statute. And over time, the statute has basically come to mean that if two or more people agree, as they would have to do for any conspiracy, to try to prevent someone from enjoying a particular constitutional right, uh, it could be the right to interstate travel. It could be there are all sorts of things. But the election law application has existed now since 1915. And I haven't done an exhaustive search, but there's an opinion in 1944 in a case called Anderson in which the 
Supreme Court says basically, this is totally settled. It's not an issue. I think it's 1974. 74, you're right. I'm sorry, 1974. That's the the Marshall case uh, from West Virginia, right? But anyway, go ahead. So that's the theory, right? That that people have the constitutional right to have their vote counted and counted fairly and appropriately. And not diluted. And not diluted, right. That's the right, and not diluted. And so if you add votes and therefore they their vote was counted, but their ca- their vote didn't count in the way it was supposed to count, that's not okay. So plug it in. Plug it in to, to the events. Who did what to whom? We still don't know exactly who did what to whom, but, but it's clear that the theory here is that Trump and others agreed to try to add votes or take votes away or have votes not counted that were legitimate votes. And that they, but the, the key is they had to have known that what they were doing was not actually correct, right? And that, at the end of the day, is going to be what this case turns on and why so much has been made about the fact of whether Donald Trump actually knew that he had lost the election or not. But in this particular instance, I don't even sure you have to get to that place where he knew he had lost. Agreed. If he was just trying to change the totals, that's enough, I think. I totally agree. 100%, right? That, I mean, this is all canard, although jury appeal. I would agree. And it gets the, out of kind of the shoals of what was Donald Trump thinking into what was he doing and what was the impact. Dangerous territory anyway, although we have by now, and I'm sure Smith has five times these, a lot of statements that he knew. I'm going to sound a dissenting view or contrary view, and then we'll we'll see just because I, I do take that point. I know the Marshall opinion that you're referring to. However, the conduct of abridging votes, I think, is largely covered by the 371 charge and the false electors. And it's significant to me that they didn't bring the insurrection. So I'm thinking of this as a more secure without the First Amendment perils that Katie outlined, way of getting at the activity on January 6th itself. Now, if that's right, and I'm also thinking about Jack Smith and Merrick Garland, thinking about even given Marshall, Oliver Wendell Holmes, what would this Supreme Court do three years down the line with a theory that basically covers all voters? So I just want to put in a marker. I'm not, you know, not even a- advocating so much for something like the actual conduct on January 6. And if you think about that, to me, you're in a universe that's more about the rights of who being a bridge. The officers, maybe, Mike Pence, maybe. But I think, and this is also, Paul, you would know, Andrew, you'd know this from, you know, there's, there are uh, theories that the Civil Rights Division have followed in this line of statutes that the members of Congress are entitled to show up, do their jobs without fear, don't have to be cowering under the desk. I don't love that. I don't love that. All right. Well, good. Three thumbs down. I'll just ask you one more question on this, which is tell me what of the conduct that you posited the 241 charge will get at that the other, well, especially 370, that the other charges don't already reach. Can I just have a... uh, No, you can answer my damn question. What? I'm the host of this... (laughs) (laughs) First of all, the question, to be fair was posed to me. However, I yes. will cede I will cede the floor to the gentleman from whatever the state you happen to be living in this week. No, no, no. I wasn't going to answer. Wait, Paul, I wasn't going to answer the question. I was going to pose a general objection to the chair, which is we're going to see what the charge is when the the charge comes out. I just feel like there's time, there's I think that Harry and Paul, you could tell me how you thought of it, but when I sort of tried to figure out when I was a prosecutor, what are the facts that I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And then I took those facts and I figured out what crimes did that trigger? And then I figured out, okay, which of those crimes are are the best to charge considering a bunch of different factors? But my point being that there's just so many crimes that you could use here. There's 1,001, there's 371, there's 1512, there's so many different ones. We'll find out you know, what this case is. We all agree. Fair enough. Every, everyone agrees it's going to be brought. So we'll yeah. see what they do. Um, and also, by the way, I'm not totally convinced that we really completely know what is in that target letter. Oh, and so I don't, I don't totally take to the bank exactly what it is, especially when I hear about 371, because 371 yeah. is, as 
listeners probably know, it's, it's such a generic, it really depends on what you're filling that with. What's the conspiracy to do? And it could be, for all we know, it could be a 371 to do campaign finance fraud. Katie, do you want to defend the old gray lady here? No, I think that the reason why we wrote the story with the headline, the things that Trump could maybe sort of, we are not, <laughs> is for the reason that Andrew points out, because, I mean, Donald Trump, he does help the press a lot by breaking his own news, so we don't have to do the hard work of figuring out what happened. <laughs> and he it. But it's, it's always, you always have to pause when he refuses to give the details. Like he didn't- Like the letter. Like he didn't tweet out an image of the letter. And right. But he close to him is really is is really affirmatively all on board, singing in one voice. This is what is in it. So I think it's always good to be cautious there. Also, when we think about the people, this is one of the questions that Harry had sort of mentioned earlier before we hopped on, like who's cooperating, what information do people right. have? I think Andrew is right to think bring up the possibility of, for example, a financial crime, because there's been so much attention paid to fundraising and how he's been fundraising, what he's been fundraising on and what he's vowed to do with the money and whether or not he actually used the money in that way. You know, so there are different questions that have come up and different witnesses that could answer them. Um, And we're not, so we're not 100% sure. I just want to adopt the friendly amendment. I think maybe it's unfriendly of Andrew to get, (laughs) look, on this, we're going to know soon enough, fine. I actually thought that something we, that, is really worth speculating about, and we all agree will happen, is it's a conspiracy statute. That means there are co-conspirators. There's an agreement. Who will they be, and will they be named? Yeah, I just wanted to come back to one thing that you said, right? So I think it's entirely likely that the members of Congress will get their due, as you will, in an obstruction of an official proceeding charge, if Mm -hmm. that's what he brings. Because they are the victims in some sense of that. They did have a constitutional duty to do certain things, and he tried to interfere with that and get them not to do what the Constitution requires them to do. But that's not a right for them. That's why I didn't like the application of 241 to that. The members of Congress, the senators, the the representatives, don't have a right in in that sense to cast their vote in a way that was, I think the right here that's much more crystallized and under 241, 241 jurisprudence requires that the right that you're protecting be clearly established. And the courts have said for decades, the clearly established means not just one decision or somebody's good idea, but it means something that everybody can read and look at. And that's why I like the dilution of the vote one from the um, Holmes opinion in, in 1915 and the Anderson case in 1974, because the Supreme Court said it is clear on that score. So I will give you my first take on a conspirator, Jeffrey Clark. Mm -hmm. Dog agrees with me. All right. And we haven't heard. We do know John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani's lawyers have said we haven't gotten a target letter. Okay. Jeffrey Clark, the man who would be king, the, you know, vassal who would be king of DOJ. Other thoughts, or maybe Andrew even wants to elaborate, who we're going to see as co-conspirators? Well, when you say who we're going to see, there are three different buckets we have to put people in in that context. Yes. Okay? Yes. One is, will there be co-defendants who are co-conspirators? And I I honestly would be, I mean, I was a little surprised about Nauda in the documents case because they're on different levels. And I think that it's, it's more complicated to try Donald Trump with somebody else sitting at council table, maybe. We can talk about why they might've done that in, 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 in perhaps on another podcast. But I, I don't know that they're gonna be co-conspirators in this indictment. That's category one. The department, as a general rule, it does not name co-conspirators in an indictment who are not charged and who have not pled guilty. And so I would be surprised, very but it surprised. I- identifies. No, but it identifies them in a very different way. It identifies Fair. them in, yeah. in in a letter, in a letter or a notice to defense counsel later. It's not. It's not even a public. It's not even public correspondence. It's not necessarily filed on the docket. That got litigated in the Bridgegate case because the yeah. press actually filed a motion for access. To, the, to whatever information the, the, we had provided to the defense in that case, went to the Third Circuit, and the Third Circuit said, you don't have a right to it. Sorry, Katie, you don't get it in a case like that. So I don't know that the answer that you're looking for is going to be public. And then the third is, who are the co-conspirators who are just going to be witnesses 
who have gotten a deal, an immunity deal perhaps, or have gotten a non-prosecution agreement and are going to show up at trial. And I think for that, it may leak out over time. You may see, you may glean information about that in pretrial motion practice or other discovery, but I don't know that you're going to get the answer that you're looking for whatever day it is that the, that the ex-president gets indicted. So what we're positing here is something like with others known or unknown to the grand jury, some identification that Trump didn't act alone because it's a 241 charge. But literally, the caption of the case is USA versus Donald Trump and nobody else. Andrew, if you were a prosecutor and had put together the facts of the case and then were deciding, how do you like that approach and what recommends it to you? It depends on the proof I had. I, If I had proof that I thought was beyond a reasonable doubt of his conspirators, conspirators, I would charge it. I know that there, I think reasonable minds could differ. There's a whole concern about don't put too many people in who could delay the case, et cetera. And so you could have separate charges with and separate, you know, like one case against Donald Trump separately you charge other people. That is definitely an approach. I'm not saying it's a definite, but I think that if I had the proof with respect to Mark Meadows, Eastman, and Jeff Clark, and Cheesebro, just to take an example, mm-hmm. or Rudy, for that matter, I would include them all. I think that it's going to be very hard to bring this case to trial before the election anyway. And so I think it's it would be important for the jury to see sort of the full scope and the, and all of those people there. I don't think it measurably changes the prospect of getting the case to trial. But, you know, I think that's one where reasonable minds could differ. You could have a Donald Trump alone and then you charge the other people. Just to be clear, if you did that, that doesn't prevent the case being joined by a judge. So whatever you do there, it's not definitive that would it would be tried that way because a judge who had both cases could be like, I'm going to tie them together. Why don't one? It's, you know, you're not talking about trying 20 people. I mean, that you couldn't do. There's a lot of law about that's too many. But I don't know. What, what would you do? What would I do? I think the dynamic that you're laying out is for Trump only has to do with speed and for and with others has to do with comprehensiveness or full story to a jury, which you can always tell. Just to cut to the chase, I would have more, and I would like them at council table, and I would like that dynamic. But it depends a little on where Smith is. So let me ask Katie, do you have a sense of just how focused Smith and the DOJ are on speed and the so-called electoral clock that is the obsession, I think, of the, you know, cable and reporting, but maybe less so for Jack Smith. So I think that the obsession of cable news is certainly the clock. And it's one of the problems with cable news. Well, that's a different discussion for a different day. <laughs> but I mean, no, it's 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 problem because it sets up false expectations for the American people. It puts thoughts into the heads of government officials that may or may not exist. And then the public excoriates and crucifies those government officials and the talking heads and reporters when what happens in reality does not comport with all the false expectations created out of thin air on cable news. And that is genuinely a problem. I find, especially when thinking about something like timing, because at the end of the day, I think that if the department cared about the electoral clock more than anything, there would have been a special counsel the day that Merrick Garland walked in the door. But that didn't happen. And then what we saw Jack Smith do is one of the one of the first things we've seen him do, we can see from the grand jury, you know, from the people walking into the grand jury, he actually went back and he kind of almost like he was checking a lot of the work done out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. He was bringing back the same witnesses. They were going over the same theories of the case. What I found interesting is that after January 6th, all through 2020 and 2021, especially 2021, we had reporting about the investigators inside of the U.S. Attorney's Office looking at things like financing, fundraising, financing for the rally, um, planning for the rally, and the scheme to you know either submit a false slate of electors in order to outright change the outcome of the election that day, or to just stymie 
um, the vice president and slow things down so much that there was no way to certify the election, that either outcome would be okay. And that was all being recorded in that year after January 6th, and you saw witnesses go into the grand jury who were talking about those things in that year. And then Jack Smith comes in, and you see the same witnesses going in. And you see reporting in the Washington Post and the Times and other places that those conversations are all happening again. So it felt to me like Smith really just wanted to know for himself what people had found and what these folks would be like if they were forced to be in a witness stand and how they could help or harm the government's case. And if he was thinking about speed more than anything, he wouldn't have done all that. He would have said, I trust your work, let's keep moving. Let's just keep going. I think genuinely he cares about what are the facts, what are the applicable laws, and how can I win this thing? And now he's at a point where he's like, okay, I've sent the target letter. I had to give Donald Trump his four days. And if his lawyers say, we want to have that meeting, just like they did with the documents case, after the documents case, Trump's lawyers were like, we want to meet with the Justice Department. And indeed, the Justice Department did grant them that meeting. I don't think he's going to move outside of regular procedures just to push things along, just so cable news can get the trial date that cable news wants. I think he wants to dot every I and cross every T because all this is going to be so heavily scrutinized. And I think that's his main concern, not uh, making sure we get a cool trial, uh, a fireworks trial at some date that cable news has said they would like to see it. So first, I think this case is, is a, on a slower track. Anyway, if it gets indicted, then the Mar-a-Lago case. The only complicated thing about the Mar-a-Lago case is that the documents are classified. Otherwise, the facts are pretty simple. You have stuff in your house you're not supposed to have, and you know you're not supposed to have it. And that's not a long trial, right? The, what, what, it's the lead-up on the classified documents that are complicated. This one, I think the evidence is, especially if there are three different sets of charges on three different theories, then I think that makes it more tricky to try, but there's one other thing I want to say. If I were if I were Jack Smith, and I were worried about Fannie Willis in Atlanta, I wouldn't be worried about whether she indicts before I do or not. He's not that kind of guy. What I would be really worried about is that she's put the same witnesses in her grand jury that I'm putting in my grand jury. Right. And what makes me what always made me very nervous as a prosecutor, and this is a little bit about going to, to Katie's point. I I never loved. In fact, did everything I could to avoid. The idea that someone else would be questioning the witnesses and not doing it in the way that I would have done it, creating potentially inconsistent statements between what those folks have said in Atlanta and what they're saying before the grand jury in Washington, D.C. And to Katie's point, I'm not sure that he would have put them in the grand jury on the same stuff in D.C. for exactly that reason, because he doesn't want to create inconsistent statements from witnesses in his own grand jury investigation. And so it may well be that he put them in, put the same witnesses in precisely for the reason that Katie identified, which is he's changing course and he was doing it on a different theory. But I'd be really surprised if he was going over the same ground with them unless there were holes that he thought he needed to fill. One thing is certain, he's totally focused on this point that Paul just made because it really doesn't take much. We've all seen it, two statements that vary. One says five and one says 530 and a good defense attorney can, you know, try to go to town. Any other thoughts about timing? I'll just chime in and say, I do think, you know, there have been reports he wants to talk to Bernie Carrick or whatever. I think that he sent the target letter means he's good to go. I do think they will be afforded a chance to appeal, but, you know, they can't take four weeks to, to schedule it. But otherwise, the table is set. Does anyone have a different view? I guess I'm not quite as confident about the timing right. as you seem to be, right? We do have a record here of Jack Smith sending a target letter and indicting, you know, in some single-digit or low-double-digit number of days after that. That's not typically the department's practice, right? People get target letters before that. And by the way, if Trump's lawyers say to Jack Smith, you haven't interviewed Katie Benner, or you haven't interviewed Andrew Weissman, or you didn't talk to some witness you've never heard of, and the department does what it should do, what Jack Smith should do, he's going to go out and talk to those witnesses. I had producers telling me they thought that Jack Smith was going to indict Donald Trump today. And I was like, first of all, it's the grand jury who has to do it, so I think you guys can stand down. But you know, people think that he's just going to 
that he himself, Jack Smith, not understanding how an indictment works, is going to just do this sometime over the weekend. Can I take a different view than Katie on Jack and the clock? I actually do think that Jack is concerned about the clock for two reasons. One, I'm just thinking about how we thought of the clock in the special counsel Mueller investigation, and there was just a general sense, but in that investigation, even and Enron also going back like a million years, there just was a sense of our obligation to the public to act as quickly as possible if to decide one way or the other whether we had a case and to not let it linger and to not be doing a Ken Starr approach. And so I think that's one. And then the other is, I do think that he's thinking if it's possible to have a case before the election, he should do so because one way or the other, whether there's conviction or acquittal, that the public should see the evidence and have that the benefit of that, if it is consistent with due process for the defendant. And I think that's why he gave at the press conference, one of the few things he said was if they're going to seek a speedy trial, because he has acted unbelievably quickly in the documents case and with respect to the target letter. And I have a sort of slightly different take, although obviously, Katie, you could be totally right. My tea leaf reading, you know, I don't know if I'd even call it educated guess, is one of the reasons if I came into an ongoing investigation that was conducted by people I didn't really know is I'd want to have a sense of the people, of their testimony, and their get a sense, like the reason to bring them back. Obviously, there could be substantive reasons. Well, you meant the witnesses, not the prosecutors. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I meant the witnesses come have been in already or been interviewed, but I'd want to know one, obviously, there could just be a separate independent reason, which is just, you know, is there some new information we have to ask them about? And for all we know, Jack looked at it and said, wait, you didn't ask questions A, B, C, and D. The other is he could just be like, I need to get a sense of what they're like. Like, how is this going to play? How are they going to come off? And I kind of want to have that sense because I don't know you, Thomas Wyndham, just as a, I'm just picking that as a, you know, a hypothetical. So I kind of want to know myself. So... That's my gut. But again, I could be totally wrong on this, but that's my gut. You're right. He did say when he did, I'm going to move as quickly as possible. But what I'm, what I was saying is that I don't think he's concerned about getting a trial done by a certain date because there's pressure on him to do so by, you know, some combination of CNN and MSNBC. Oh, no, 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 no. Of course not. I think it's internal pressure. But yeah, no, he came in and the first press conference, he said, I'm going to move as quickly as, as possible. But Andrew, here's the thing. So now let's divide the world into two sets of witnesses. If witnesses are being helpful to them and are doing it in some sort of cooperative fashion, you're not putting them in the grand jury a second time. If you want to get that sense of of any of these folks and they're represented by counsel, you're just bringing them into the office to interview them. The fact that if, if people went to the grand jury twice... That suggests to me that they're not entirely on team Justice Department here, right? And and so those are the people, he may have wanted to put people in the grand jury who he thinks might be hostile, so he can see how hostile they are to fill in those lacuna. But if they're actually people who are being helpful to their case, who've made deals with them, then, I, and you and I, you know this for sure, he's not bringing them into the grand jury, he's just bringing them into the office and interviewing them. I totally agree with you. I just think that there's a category of people who are sort of I don't get the sense that there are a lot of deals that have been made. And so this is just, I think, in public corruption cases, unfortunately, like organized crime cases, it's like they need to be locked in with a transcript so they can't say the FBI made this up. That's not what I said. So, But I totally agree with you that if you had somebody who was completely on board, you would not need to put them back in the grand jury. You could just do it by an interview, and that would be the normal course. I just have a feeling in this case that a little bit like the Trump organization case in the fall in Manhattan, that that they're going to make their case through a lot of people who are hostile. I mean, that's really what we mean in part by the mob rule is just the special kind of obeisance that some of the witnesses have. And I'll just say to that point, Will Russell last week, Trump aide who was around him a lot in January 6th, he went in for the third time. So that's three different statements that they'll be turning over. Katie, you wrote that this case, when it's brought, could well move faster than Mar-a-Lago. Why is that? 
I was speaking specifically with the pretrial work would be faster than Mar-a-Lago simply because there's not a classified, there's not classified information I see. to contend with. Yeah, I, I, I think I put that on Twitter. It was something like, if an indictment comes down or when an indictment comes down from the grand jury, which I think as Paul's pointed out, doesn't necessarily have to be in the next three days, that at that point, the pretrial work is just not as complicated. It's a matter of giving the defense the evidence the government has and discussing a schedule. They're not going to have to go back and forth about. They won't need to have like a roadmap, for example, for both the information how it might be used and whether or not that's okay with, you know, and whether or not that jeopardizes national security. I'll add one more thing and then let's move to Mar-a-Lago, which is the judges. There are judges on the district bench in D.C. who I think we know now would move things quickly and a court of appeals that has shown impatience in the past with some of Trump's dilatory tactics. All right, let's move south um, to the Mar-a-Lago documents case, of course, also under Jack Smith's direction, in front of Judge Eileen Cannon, who in a previous stage gave a lot of reason for concern about her probity and disinterest, I'll put it that way, and I'll in a snooty way. All right, but we got a scheduling order and hearing. So first, let me just serve it up. May 20th, you, Andrew, said, you know, made it sound like pretty big victory for the government. I took a counter position, basically, thinking she couldn't have said it after November, and she couldn't have said it much later than, than May. But I just wonder, overall, you're Jack Smith, and you just see how she comported herself at the hearing. You see the date that she set. How are you feeling now about Judge Eileen Cannon? Anybody? I don't know. If it were me, I'd think it's too soon to tell. You know, I don't think that her picking the, the date she did and the schedule, it's not as good as they wanted, and it's not as bad as they feared. I think given the March trial that's scheduled in Manhattan, that basically took out March and April. So I think this, I actually thought this was about as early as as the government could get because I didn't see her doing it in January, which I think would be Mm -hmm. the sort of the latest could be pushed because I think that is a very tight time frame. And I could see her thinking that's not sufficiently fair to Donald Trump and that yeah, maybe reasonable minds could differ, but I, I actually think that's, that's fine. But I think the, if it hadn't been for that March trial, we could be quibbling over the sort of two or so months. So I think this is pretty good, but obviously there are a million ways as everyone on this pod knows there are a million ways to have it delayed past May. And this is a defense team that certainly knows how to do that. And Donald Trump certainly knows various ways to do that because he's there's I, there's probably no one more there's probably nobody um who we know with more trial experience than the former president <laughs> <laughs> and you know katie makes the point about this the second most important date it seemed to me on her scheduling was the late april date for the section six part of of the classified documents which could itself expand into uh, you know a, a month-long ordeal to be fair to you, you said, you know, now it's just got a hold. But that's, of course, the question. I agree it couldn't have been much earlier, but it couldn't have been much later. And the real issue is going to be, it's not just an issue of bias. You need a, a hard-nosed judge to push back appropriately without abridging, you know, due process concerns when they come in as they surely will with all kinds of complaints that need months and months, maybe even a new council, whatever, uh, come April at least. Are you saying that Donald Trump could lose a lawyer? (laughs) Just this week, right? He lost and gained one. Harry, is there there any precedent for that? (laughs) It's a good point. The former precedent? Changing council? I mean, that just seems so far-fetched. No, you're right. You're right. Plus, I just think he would think that's really not fair to the American people, too. You're right. I mean, he obviously, because he's innocent, he clearly wants to get to trial quickly because he wants the public to see the proof of his innocence, which is why he's seeking an early trial and that's the end of this episode (laughs) (laughs) and the main date or even a june date the the government has also said once this thing happens once we go to trial they believe they can bring their entire case in what was it two weeks two and a half weeks they were like 
That's once we get the date. It is a simple case in a way. Once you get the classified, we're going to need more than a few weeks, and they've said that. I think I said that like two hours ago on this podcast. That's what it seems (laughs) like. I think exactly. I think it was like three hours ago. Remember, cue music. It's true. And of course, it's not going to be a long defense case, right? Because we know witness number one will not testify. Right. I'll do a couple points. There's nothing they could bring bring her up on, but she kind of slapped the government around a little for not meeting and conferring when we. it seems pretty clear the defense wasn't really available. Uh, different judges might have handled that differently. Different judges might have handled the complete bogus Presidential Records Act thing differently. But the main thing about the hearing, I think, is she was just ca- very cautious, heard one side, then the other, and then issued her order. Here's something that may, that kind of went under the radar, but I think this is a pretty big gift to Trump. She moved the trial to her home court in Fort Pierce. How, how big a deal... Is that for the DOJ that'll be there and not Miami? I don't know enough about the way they pull jurors in the in the Southern District of Florida and whether they pull them only from the locality yeah. in which the courthouse is sitting or whether they still pull them from from a larger space. I just don't know. Oh, that's they a great have... point. It might not affect the jury pool, in other words, that it that it's there. Is that is that right? It probably does because you're probably not making. If there's a jury in Miami, you're probably not making people from you know Boca drive all the way down to Miami every day for jury duty. So there's probably some division, yeah. but I don't know what the rest of that venue looks like. What I will say is that for people in Katie's profession, it's not great because I'm willing to bet that the courthouse in Fort Smith <laughs> and the courtrooms in Fort Pierce are way smaller than they are in Miami or or in Palm Beach, and that there are fewer places for the press to stay. And to the extent that, that there's, you know, there's a real interest in the country in hearing about this trial and hearing about it in real time, I think that, that the move to Fort Pierce is actually going to compromise that in some way. I can't articulate exactly what it will be, but I think it's way easier for public access if it's farther south than that. I actually am really surprised that the marshals, you know, aren't insisting that it be in a courthouse that is as I understand it, is set up more for security purposes. So maybe they've looked at Fort Pierce and realized that they can do that in that courthouse. But I just feel like that has to be something that weighed heavily in the mix. But maybe maybe they they did an evaluation and determined that that it would be the same. Or just as good, or better, or honestly, or honestly, Andrew, better because yeah. you know you don't you know the federal courthouse in Miami is a pretty busy place, and so maybe it's easier for them to secure the perimeter and, yeah. and do all they yeah, want to do right. without disrupting mm-hmm. the rest of the court's functions and without making it inconvenient for everybody who lives in the neighborhood. I, I don't know, Andrew. The jury's out. You say I see that she's done nothing even remotely like appealable yet. What's the next big? hint we're going to get of the Judge Cannon we will be seeing in this case? I think it's going to be hard to see because I think we may find that one side or the other is trying to appeal some SEPA ruling where we won't know exactly what's at issue. So we may find that there's some sort of appeal, but because all of that's sort of behind Iron Curtain, we won't really have a good sense of it. But I think that's the area where there could be you know, a real problem. Yeah. And I'll just add, the pretrial motions are still due in November, and there are ones that she could indulge the way she did previously that would be kind of nuts. Yes, like the attorney-client. Well, that's not so nuts, it seems to me. You know, she could. Yeah, I'm sorry, Paul, you had a point? So first of all, she she set two dates for pretrial motion hearings, one in November, one in February for whatever's left. I think there's a much simpler answer. The way we're going to find out is this is an extraordinarily detailed schedule for a criminal case. I haven't seen one that has this many deadlines, and it's partly because it's a it's a SEPA case, including classified documents, and she's laid out a very clear schedule. I think the way we're going to find out how she's going to treat this is when the defense inevitably starts missing these deadlines or asking them right. to be extended for reasons that she will either find convincing where she will find spurious. And if it's the latter, if she decides that they're just trying to slow stuff down, the extent to which they her, they get her dander up and she actually starts taking shots at them for slowing down the process, I think that's how we're going to find out 
probably sometime, honestly, in the early to mid-fall, how she's treating the schedule and whether they're going to be able to run her around or not. That is a great point. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rose wine to see if there's truly a best way to rose. First, Rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saignée, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, but the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. I just had one thing about Smith I wanted to ask, which is we learned this week about the charges in Michigan. Obviously, Fonnie Willis will be coming out of the gate with a behemoth case pretty soon. And as best we can tell, and Paul, I don't know if you disagree, but to me, I found it distinctive and out of the the normal path. Smith doesn't seem to be having much communication with the states at all. Once their charges are unsealed, and just for practical reasons, does that have to change? What are the overall challenges or demands put on him 
by the growth of these other cases, especially in state jurisdictions? Well, look, the first thing, and I said this a little earlier that I would be worried about if I was Jack Smith, is that people have said slightly different or maybe seriously different things to people in other investigations than they're saying to me. And and that is great fodder, as Andrew pointed out before, or you did, to the defense, right? If you have witnesses who make contradictory statements or or whatever, then then a, a good defense lawyer can use that as pretty good ammunition in a in a criminal case. So that if if I were Jack Smith, I'd be worried about what I don't know. He's obviously trying to learn everything he can, but he doesn't know that yet. The downside of his coordinating at this stage with any state prosecutors is the closer the connection and the more he works with them, the more he might own the obligation to provide discovery on everything that's happened in their investigations to the defense. Mm, explain that a little. So the government has an obligation, as as everybody um, on, on this panel knows, has to provide to the defense all of the all of the material, the, the hard copy material that's in your possession, and all of the documents and electronic records, not witness statements necessarily, not those come later, but you have to provide all the stuff that you have gathered. And you also have to tell the defense any information that might be exculpatory, either because it tends to show that the defense, the defendant actually didn't do it, or because it's sufficiently material, it's sufficiently important that it undercuts the merits of your case as a prosecutor. Inconsistent witness statements can rise to that level under many circumstances. The close, more closely you coordinate with another prosecutor, the more the stuff that they have become your stuff that you then have to disclose to the defense and, so, and to gather. And so he may have been taking a hands-off position for that very reason. The other reason is I think he probably doesn't want to be perceived as coordinating with people who the who people who his 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 target of his investigation have said are, are against Trump, right? And to the more they look like they are to use the word that um, Andrew's familiar with, and they were was quite vogue, you know, three, four, five years ago, because they were colluding, right? Then, then that's not so great. And so, so I think for all of those reasons, he's kept his distance. But here's what I think is going to happen: if Fannie Willis gets out of the gate, either in two weeks or in four weeks or in eight weeks, my guess is that under Georgia law, she probably has an obligation. Most states have open file discovery. I don't know what it is in Georgia. So if she has to turn that stuff over, Jack Smith will be able to get it then. And then he'll be able to figure out whether it helps his case or hurts his case and whether there's any impact at all. My impression is, as he's been extraordinarily close to the vest with press, with states, with everybody, is that true as, as he and his whole operation, kind of as Mueller was, I think, been an ex exceptionally hard nut to crack, as it were? I mean, all of the information has come from Donald Trump himself, and that's to be expected. Jack Smith sends a target letter, Donald Trump tells us. Jack Smith brings one of Trump's allies into the grand jury, Donald Trump generally tells us or that person tells us. Jack Smith is you know, looking into some aspect of his operation around fundraising. It's, you know, usually somebody's gone into the grand jury, comes out and says, Jack Smith asked us about this. I mean, this is, this is very typical. Donald Trump tells us and then, and then asserts that the DOJ leaked it. And he's not even doing that anymore. He's just on true social saying this happened. Harry, I just wanted to comment on the analogy to special counsel Mueller. Although everyone publicly saw that that we were very closed down with respect to leaks, talking to the press, anything like that. The idea that, that there wasn't coordination and discussion with other offices, federal and state, is not true. And there's public information on that. And there even were some parallel cases. So Michael Cohen was prosecuted by us and we gave a piece of it to the Southern District of New York and they prosecuted and those were coordinated. Paul Manafort, there was a piece of that in the Southern District of New York and in Los Angeles and we coordinated with that. There was a potential issue with the Manhattan DA's office and coordinated on that. So the idea that there wouldn't be that kind of outreach and coordination as to where it was in our interest, I don't see that as something that Jack can't do and that there would be anything inappropriate with it. And frankly, for our, the reasons that, that Paul is talking about, that you, you're going to need to know what these people said. You're going to also not want to put 
witnesses who are cooperative and who are victims, you, you're going to you don't necessarily want them to be have to be go through all of that twice when they could be interviewed once. But also, if the defense is going to learn something about you know Brady or impeachment evidence, you're going to want to know what the defense knows, even if right. it's even it's coming from a different area. And I think in this case, you're not going to be playing games in any way with sort of Brady information, you're going to want to make sure it's all out there to, for the defense to use. So I understand that it can be spun by Donald Trump, uh, but I just don't think that's how you can think about it. You kind of have to just do what you think is the right thing for the case and deal with those those issues secondarily. I totally agree. And I'll just say my instinct and experience is U.S. Attorney, this is a sui generis case, of course, nothing I had was in the ballpark, but I'm sure Paul would agree. Your instinct, I was very tight, close-lipped with the press, but but it's a whole different ball game. your partners in state and federal enforcement, even understanding, as I think Smith does, that it opens the risk of some kind of leak. Even so, it's just for the practical concerns are, are so paramount. All righty, we are out of time. Man, this has been a great discussion, nuts and bolts and broader issues. We just have a couple minutes for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in Five Words or Fewer. Today's question, which name or names will not appear in the indictment and why not? That's five words, just in the indictment period. John Eastman, Alyssa Farah, Griffin, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchinson, and Jeff Clark. Anybody? I predict no names. <laughs> <laughs> Unindicted co-conspirators are common. Excellent. Yeah, but the names are not supposed to appear if they're not charged <laughs> or have previously pleaded guilty. So there's, that's just a DOJ policy. Or if that, they're not charged, right, if they're, if they're not charged at all in the case. This is kind of a weird question because there shouldn't be a name. I mean, that's the funny thing. Well, the question really is, the question really should be, essentially, will there be co-defendants is really exactly. what you want to add. That's because, exactly. Because, right, that, right? Switch it up, but give us five words of your answer. Andrew Weissman? Give me the list of people again. Oh, my God. <laughs> John Eastman. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchison, Jeff Clark. Well, I think Jeff Clark is going to be mentioned because I think he's going to be charged. That's my guess. And I'd say Griffin is the one that I think won't be there. But the other people could all be charged. I mean, it's like I'm not as confident of that, but it's like it's certainly in the realm of possibility. You guys are going to be mad at my answer, but... What do you got, Harry? Trick question... Most of them. Whoa. All right. Wow. We are out of time. Wow. <laughs> the prerogative of the moderator. The reason I think it's not it's not likely to happen yeah. is because not all of them are going to be part of the same conspiracy. If you put more people in than one person, you're going to have you're going to you could have overlapping you could have a multi-object conspiracy, but I just think that that makes this case spectacularly complicated legally. All right, let's go with this a little bit more because you're right. It's a it's a stupid question. What matters is no, it's who not else stupid, will be charged. It's tricky. But Jeff, yeah, but it's tricky. But Jeff Clark, and who Andrew's focused on, the three charges don't fit him so well. The guy who fits the best to me is Mark Meadows. But, well, of course, you know, of course, we don't know, but we don't know his status, right? That the effort to disenfranchise voters would fit Clark totally. Mm -hmm. And what we're missing on him, you know, we've all forgotten that the inspector general began investigating what was happening at mm -hmm. DNC, right? Jeffrey Clark. I don't, I, but I don't think he'll care. I don't think Smith will care. Do you? From the IG investigation comes a criminal referral. How many times does the IG investigate? and send over a criminal referral to the department. So we haven't seen or heard anything about that IG investigation. And I think that that is important because the IG has been specifically focused on Clark. That's what we know. Because he was the department employee. And of course, there was one other department employee who came to DOJ at the very end of the Trump administration, who came to work with Jeff, who came from OMB, who also was somebody they were looking at and inspecting all of their emails and their email traffic. And so, indeed, you could imagine a criminal referral coming from the IG investigation. That would be referred to, you know, 
Now I think it would be referred to Jack Smith, I would think, but don't know. Yes. And of course, that entire effort was to basically get rid of, nullify the results of the Electoral College vote, basically to throw away tens of thousands, if not millions, yeah. of votes. All right. The longest, but the best five words or fewer in talking to <laughs> <laughs> We are now really out of time. Thank you very much to Katie, Paul, and Andrew. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether they're for talking five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Zeke Reed is our researching producer, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Meredith McCabe. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.